It's a new year. A time where many of us are thinking about perhaps turning over a new leaf. Perhaps thinking about how we might approach the challenges that we're going to face in this new year. Perhaps dedicating ourselves uh, to new things. So it's a good time for us to consider the question of faith. As we read in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In this passage, we see Paul talking about how faith is central to the gospel. It's central to the good news that we have been given because faith is central to salvation. Faith is an idea that is fundamental to the lives that we live as Christians. As he says, we live by faith. But if we're going to commit ourselves to living by faith, it's important that we understand what faith is, what it means to live by faith. So we're going to look at this passage a bit more closely later on. But first, I just want to think a bit more broadly about what faith is. What, what do we mean by faith? And this idea of faith is closely tied to the idea of belief. And you probably noticed the theme in the songs that we've been seeing this morning about faith and belief. So hopefully that's, those have sparked some ideas in your mind. So faith and belief are ideas that are closely tied together. And in fact, faith and belief are often used interchangeably as words, both in our common usage today, but also in the Bible itself. When we think about faith and belief today, we might often think about, we might say that, well, belief is some uh, some idea that we hold to be true. It might be a subjective opinion or perhaps it might be something that is based on some kind of evidence that we see and so we hold this belief, we hold these things to be true. That's how we often talk about belief. But if we think about, well, okay, so then what's faith? Well, we might, it's, again, it's very similar, but I think often today people use the idea of faith as to hold something to be true, often without any evidence. That's what people describe faith as. In fact, that's how many people in the world view all kinds of religious faith as some idea, something that people hold to be true without any evidence at all. But of course, I don't think I'm telling you anything new to say that this isn't really what the Bible means when it talks about us having faith or living by faith. I think faith actually goes beyond belief. Faith goes beyond simply accepting something to be true, whatever that is. You know, Each one of us has all sorts of different beliefs, all sorts of different things that we hold to be true. They might be little things, they might be big things. We all have many different beliefs. But I think for any of these beliefs to become something we might call faith means going one step further. 
So to illustrate, illustrate, I think it's interesting just to consider a simple example um, to help us think about what this means. For instance, I believe that in 1969 the Apollo 11 mission went to the moon. I believe that men actually walked on the surface of the moon. Now, I don't know this for certain. I wasn't there, obviously. I wasn't even alive to watch it on TV at the time. But I've seen evidence of it. I've seen reports about it. Um, and I'm convinced that this actually took place. But as you probably know, not everyone believes this. Not everyone believes that it actually happened. But what does this belief that I have in the truth of Apollo 11, what does this belief actually mean for me? Well, I suppose it means that it, I can feel good about it. I can feel good about, you know, it might be inspiring to me in terms of, well, this is what we as human beings can achieve when we put our minds to it. It's a great story. But really that's about it. That's all it really means to me. Because ultimately it doesn't really touch me in any way. It doesn't really ask anything of me. It doesn't really have any consequences in my life. It doesn't change how I live my life. So really this belief I have in Apollo 11, it just begins and ends as a mental exercise, a belief that I hold. And I'm sure you, you, you can uh, relate to that. But what if we think about someone who perhaps their belief in Apollo 11 went a bit further than that, for whom it meant a bit more? This is the crew of Apollo 12, who were the next mission to head to the moon after Apollo 11. For them, whether the Apollo mission was true, whether they actually went there, whether it was successful or not, for them, it wasn't just some trivial matter, um, just a, a nice thing that might have happened. For them, it's something that meant everything. Because if it was faked, then, well, their life's work was meaningless for one, but also it meant that, well, maybe it's really risky to be going to the moon. Maybe it's more ris risky than we realise. Maybe they faked it because something went horribly wrong that we don't know about. So for them, whether it ha happened or not meant a lot more than it does for me. And so they didn't just believe in what had happened before in Apollo 11. For them it wasn't just some nice idea. They had to have faith in it. They put their faith in it. They put their lives on the line because of it. And so they trusted themselves to their spacecraft, to mission control, everyone surrounding it. It went that one step further. And I think that's an interesting example, uh, firstly because it shows that these ideas of belief and faith aren't limited to the religious sphere. It's not just something that religious people are involved with, this, these ideas of belief and faith, but they're something that we face all the time in our lives, things that we believe, things we might put our faith in. But it's also interesting because if we think about it, well, what can we learn from this difference between my belief in Apollo 11 and 
the Apollo 12 astronauts' belief in Apollo 11? What can we learn from this distinction? So firstly, it's because that belief demanded something from them. See, I can just afford to limit my belief in Apollo 11 to some, something I experience in my mind, just an idea that I have, because it's a situation where, that I'm not involved with. I'm just on the sidelines. It happened more than 50 years ago. I'm just a spectator. And because of that, I only really will ever have a trivial interest in the issue. And so it's natural that I respond with just a trivial idea in my mind about it. But because it demanded something from them, they had to put that belief to the test. They had to put that belief into action. And I think that's a key difference between belief and faith. It's faith when it asks something of us. It's faith when we put something on the line because of it. Faith isn't just something that we think, it's something that we do, something that we live. I think this is what James was talking about when he says in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, I think this passage is a perfect example of how interchangeable these words, belief and faith, can sometimes be. Um, because the words that you see there, some, sometimes he mentions believe, sometimes he mentions faith. They're essentially the same word, but we sort of apply different translations to it. But what, what, what is James actually saying here? Well, he's saying that, well, it's easy to say that we believe something. It's easy to say that we have faith in something. Perhaps we might genuinely mean it, or perhaps we might be deceiving ourselves. But really, James says, although it's easy to say, really, what good is it if it just remains this idea as something in our heads or if just words that we say? What good is it? If it doesn't result in some kind of a response or some kind of an action, it's just a matter of trivia, like my belief in Apollo 11. In fact, James even goes on to say, if it just remains this idea in our heads, we're just like the demons, he says, who they believe in God, they genuinely believe in God, they, they know about God, they know so surely that they're afraid of him, they shudder, they tremble because they know who God is. They believe in God. But what have they done with that belief? Has that belief in God humbled them in any way? Has that belief in God guided any of their choices? Obviously it hasn't. And so James says their belief is useless. It's dead. 
their lives look the same as if they had no belief at all. So James asks us the same question about our belief. Well, we believe in God, we say. We've been persuaded, we've been convinced about the truth, about God. Good, says James. That's a good place to start. It's where we need to start. But what then have we done with that belief? Has it humbled us? Is it guiding any of our choices? Otherwise, James says it's just a, our belief is just a useless statement without meaning. Like, as he says, wishing someone well, wishing someone to be well fed and warm without lifting a finger to do anything about it. It's just as useless, just as meaningless, just hollow words that mean nothing. So how do we know what faith is? James says we'll know faith by what we do. True faith is something that's visible, it's something that's active, it's something that's obvious, he says. So faith is an act, something we do. But I think even to say that acting on a, on a belief is faith, I don't think it even goes quite far enough to fully encapsulate what God is talking about when he says we need to live by faith. I don't think it goes quite far enough to describe biblical faith. I think biblical faith is something personal. You know, there's many causes that we might become involved in, many things we might believe in, put our trust in. They might even guide our lives in some way, for better or worse. You know, for many people, they might get involved in a political cause. It might be communism, it might just be something else, and that guides their life. Perhaps it might be some kind of a charitable cause that we get involved in that really motivates us, that changes the way we live. All of these things, they might be something good, they might be something less good. But I think we can recognise that no matter how good or bad any of these things might be or how all-consuming any of these causes or beliefs might be, there's something that's still insufficient about them, something incomplete that will never really satisfy us as human beings compared to putting our faith in God. And I think that's because... We're not really believing in or putting our faith in a cause or an idea. We're asked to put our faith in a person, a living and active being, God in Jesus. And because of that, it's something that's going to be much more powerful, much more demanding also. What do I mean by this? Well, let's consider the Pharisees, for example. As we read in Matthew chapter 23... Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. So if we think about these Pharisees Jesus is talking about, well... They believed in God. Check. All good. They even followed God's laws strictly. They put them into action. Check. 
You know, they were even following them so strictly that they were tithing even the tiniest of their garden herbs to make sure that they followed God's law. So they were putting into action. But despite that, Jesus says they're missing something. He says they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faith. If you think about those things Jesus says that they were neglecting, they're sort of aspects of the law that are a bit bit harder to quantify in specific bite-sized rules that we can easily check off a list. You know, I've tied my mint, I've tied my dill, all these sorts of things. These are aspects of the law that um, speak more to the attitude of the heart that God wants in us. And so although the Pharisees were following the letter of the law strictly um, and diligently, I think we can see Jesus saying they aren't being changed by the law. Because when they look at the law, they only see themselves and what they need to do, what they can achieve, rather than in the law seeing God revealed to them and the sorts of people that God wants them to be. They didn't see God in the law or any reason to put their trust or faith in God because of the law. They thought they had it all under control. And I think it's this attitude to the law that Jesus also addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. He says there, if we, if we focus primarily on following the letter of the law, um, we're going to end up being um, consumed by our own interests rather than the interests of others. And that's going to lead to all kinds of perversions in the law. If we, follow, um, if we focus on following the details only, if we, you know, if we follow on, if we, for instance, you know, if we focus on, well, I'm not calling you a bad name, well, that's, that's all I need to worry about. It doesn't matter whether I'm angry, it doesn't matter any of these things. As long as I don't kill you or perhaps call you the wrong names, well, that's all that matters. But Jesus says, no, that's not enough. It needs to be more than that. Um, yeah, so if we, if we just follow on following the letter of the law, it's going to lead to all kinds of perversions of the law. But instead, what Jesus teaches in that sermon is that if we allow the law to humble us and to change our hearts, it's only then that we can truly follow God's law. Only then, as Jesus says, will our righteousness surpass that he saw in the Pharisees. And so in that sermon when Jesus urged his listeners to put his teaching into practice, he wasn't just talking about a rote obedience like the Pharisees uh, had. He was talking about something more, something personal. And I think that's why in that sermon he spends about as much time in that sermon talking about our need to trust in God as he does talking about specific ways that we need to treat each other. If you think about some of the other things he talks about in that sermon, he talks about how, well, God knows what we need. Um, He teaches us not to worry about our lives because God is in control. He wants us to seek him first and his righteousness and all these things will be given to us. He wants us to put our treasure in heaven rather than on this earth. 
these are the things that God is, that Jesus is concerned about as much as anything we might do, whether it's um, not being angry with each other, not lusting after each other, all of these things. God wants more than just obedience. He wants us to fully entrust ourselves to him. He wants our allegiance. He wants our hearts to be given to him and changed by him. I think we can also see this illustrated by the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters in Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So what's the thing that here Jesus says that this man lacked? Well, wasn't that he didn't believe in God? Wasn't that he wasn't following the law? It wasn't that he wasn't putting it into practice? I don't even think his problem really was the fact that he hadn't done enough for the poor. I think the the problem that Jesus is able to sort of focus in on with this man is that he didn't really trust in God. He still wanted to hold on to his wealth. He wanted to hold on to those things that he had because it's what made him feel... Secure. It's what it made him feel comfortable, perhaps even made him feel powerful. Um, and so he wanted to hold on to these things himself. And so Jesus' answer to him is, well, give it away. Not because of what good it might do to other people, although certainly it would have done much good, his wealth. I think the reason Jesus tells him to give it away is because of what that would mean to him personally, um, what giving it away for him would do. As it says, if you do this, you will have treasure in heaven. And that treasure in heaven isn't a reward for being so generous. It's because after giving away all of his things, then he could truly put his faith and trust completely in God. So Jesus invites him to act in faith in this way, to give himself wholly to God, to entrust himself completely to God, which would have changed his life completely in a way that nothing else he could have done would have. So he invites him to um, cast aside all these things that were standing in his way and trust him and to follow him. I suspect, suspect it wasn't just the money that troubled this, this, this man. It wasn't just the idea of losing his money that troubled him. But I think it was this much more personal the demand that Jesus put on him to give away everything that made him feel comfortable and to trust Jesus and follow Jesus. But that's the call that we're all given. 
Jesus gives us all the same call, not necessarily to give away all of our money, but to put aside everything that we put our trust in, to put aside all the things that we hold on to in this world and instead put our faith and put our trust into Jesus and Jesus alone. And in following Jesus, letting that change our hearts and our lives. And if you think about that call Jesus has to that man to come follow me, follow him, can there be a more action-based and life-changing call than that? Follow me is what faith looks like. But it calls for us to believe in him, to trust in him and to take that step in faith. And it's a personal call. It's not just an idea that's written in a book somewhere. It's a call from one person to another, from Jesus to each one of us, a personal call to follow him. So let's go back to the original text that we read at the beginning this morning. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Now that line there, the righteous will live by faith, Paul's there quoting from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And if you look at that context, we're not going to look at it closely now, but that context... That line, the righteous will live by faith, it's almost an aside in this long list of where um, God is contrasting between, on the one hand, the wicked who are arrogant, they trust in themselves, they serve only themselves, the Babylonians who, um, they're, they're the wicked people. And God assures Habakkuk there that those wicked people, they're going to get their just deserts one day. But there's that contrast between those people and then the righteous who, God says instead, will live by faith. They'll endure, they'll be justified, they'll be vindicated by God. Not by anything that they do themselves, but because of their faithful, patient trust in God. He's telling them as bad as things are at the moment with their captivity in Babylon, um, their faithful, uh, patient trust in God will set them apart and see them vindicated by God. So Habakkuk was challenging God to justify what had happened to Judah um, uh, by Babylon, his chosen people, um, but God reassures him with those words um, and Habakkuk is comforted and recharged by the promise that God gives him there. But he finishes the book, um, which is a short book, but he finishes with this hymn to God, which closes with these words, referring here to, to him seeing God's judgment and salvation that he promised. He says, I heard of this and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet... I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud 
and there's no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, even though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I think this, this hymn that Habakkuk gives to God shows us what faith is more clearly than, than any one particular word or definition we might be able to give. Because although Habakkuk was in a tragic situation, he saw the destruction that had been brought on, on Judah by the Babylonians because of their sinfulness. But despite that, he believes God in his reassurance. He believes God's promises that he gave him about how they would be vindicated because of their faithfulness. He believes God and he says he's going to keep on believing in God no matter what disaster might strike, no matter what he might lose, no matter how long it might take, he's going to keep trusting in God and keep waiting um, for God to fulfil his promises. And although he talks about waiting here, that's not just a passive thing. He's putting this belief, this trust in God into action because he's going to let that change how he views the world around him, how he's going to live as a result of what God has promised him. It's going to change how he lives. He's putting it into action. But also he's going to rejoice despite what he sees around him. His belief in what God says is going to change his attitude, it's going to change his mind and it's going to change his heart from the inside so he can rejoice in God uh, and draw on him for his strength. And all that's to say that this is what Paul calls us back to when he talks about our salvation, when he talks about the righteousness uh, that comes through faith. A salvation that comes from God, not from ourselves. A salvation that's based on God's righteousness and his faithfulness. But something that needs our, we need faith to sort of latch onto and grasp because it's not something that we can see straight away. It's this salvation that calls for us to believe, to be persuaded and be convicted and like Habakkuk, to wait patiently in faith and trust and putting that faith into action, how we live every day. So as we've been talking about these ideas of faith and belief and trust and everything, of course I don't stand before you as someone today who has perfected all of these things. You know, if I think about it, I'm, I'm probably pretty, pretty good on this belief one. I think I do okay on following rules, part putting into action. But, you know, I do find... Putting, faith, uh, putting um, my trust in God fully, faith, um, I do find that a challenge sometimes and I suspect I'm not the only one. But of course that's why we're here together as God's people, helping each other along the way. Now I've mentioned today you know, things like belief, action, faith, trust, all of these sorts of things, but they don't necessarily come in that order, one after the other. We don't start with perfect belief and then work on to the next thing and perfect that and then work on to the next. That's not how it works at all. Um, 
Rather, I think they sort of reinforce and support and develop each other as we continue on living and following Jesus. The more we, the more we keep living, the more we're going to be, um, we're going to grow in our belief, we're going to grow in our action, we're going to grow in our trust and faith. Whatever we lack, God, through the Spirit, will help us to develop and build. But it all begins uh, with the first step of believing and knowing who Jesus is, acknowledging him as our Lord and Saviour, and then committing ourselves to follow him, taking that step in trust to follow him and to put our faith and trust in him completely. If we can do that, that's a pretty good way for us all to start into this new year. So I hope that's been an encouragement to us.